Okay, normally I would read my text now and then preach it, but I'm not going to do that because what we're going to do this morning is we're going to read the entire Sermon on the Mount. We're going to read Matthews 5, 6, and 7, and we're going to read the, the what is easily the most famous sermon ever preached. Occasionally, someone will come up to me and remember a phrase or an idea from a sermon I've preached a few years earlier. That happens rarely. The Sermon on the Mount was preached 2,000 years ago, and phrases that Jesus uttered are still quoted all over the world to this day. In English, we often hear, judge not, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, that guy's the salt of the earth, America is a city on a hill. I didn't say it was well quoted. Live by the golden rule. All of these quotes are derived from a sermon preached on a plain on a mountain in Galilee 2,000 years ago. They are not always quoted in context, these quotes I mentioned, but the fact that they're continually quoted is one way of showing the influence of this amazing sermon. These 101 verses have had a, a profound impact on the church and now the world we live in. Now, I spent this week writing a sermon, and it's mostly written, on an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. So I wrote a sermon about the whole Sermon on the Mount. And as I wrote it, I just became more and more impressed that it would probably profit us more than me preaching that sermon to actually read the Sermon on the Mount. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read the Sermon on the Mount, and as we read it, I'm going to offer, and take this with a grain of salt, brief comment as we go through it. So I've I've calculated out Jesus gets about 2,500 words in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to say about under 1,500 this morning about the Sermon on the Mount. But what I want to do is I, I want to read you the Sermon on the Mount, and what's really impressed me, what's What's been gripping me as I've been reading the Sermon on the Mount backward and forward all week is how transformative this sermon was meant to be. How utterly life-changing these words were meant to be. Jesus was not just dropping truth bombs or pithy quotes that he knew would be quoted in 2,000 years. He was aiming to transform a people. He was aiming to transform the world. And so what we have in the Sermon on the Mount is really one sermon that's aimed at bringing all of life under the sway of the kingdom of heaven. And so what I want to do is read it to you, and as I read it to you, I'm just going to stop after about every paragraph. Some of the paragraphs are about a line long, some are about 15 verses long, and just mention a few ways, usually one way, that this would transform our lives. And and I'm hoping that as I do that, it'll whet your appetite. That there may be a sense in which we begin to imagine and dream and pray, what would it be like if this was the dominant shaping influence in our lives? Jesus told us to go and make disciples, teaching them to obey all of my commandments. Here they are in so many ways. Here we have Christ 
giving us, as one commentator said, the closest thing he gives to a manifesto for the kingdom of heaven. So let's jump in. Let me read. It'll be on the screen behind me. Stay engaged. Here it goes. Seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do you notice what Jesus is seeking to do in our souls? For these verses that are often called the Beatitudes? He's trying to make us see that when he exposes our spiritual poverty, poor in spirit, and moves us to mourn, mourn over sin, and hunger and thirst for righteousness, when he does all of us that in our souls, we aren't cursed. That's how we feel. But we're actually blessed. When we're persecuted, and we're trying to make peace between people who are at each other's throats, we're not cursed. We're not outside the will and favor of God, even though that's how it feels. Jesus is inviting you to reinterpret that life as it really is. The blessed life. The life that's on its way to heaven. We will be a people who feel blessed in the midst of all kinds of sadness and blessed in the midst of all of our hardships as we steep in the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 13. You, believers, are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it, will give, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You know what? I'll tell you one thing about people who mourn over sin, feel poor in spirit, and get persecuted. They not only don't feel blessed, they definitely don't feel 
like world changers, but they are. Those people are the salt and the light of the earth. They are the ones preserving like salt preserves, adding taste like salt adds taste, adding light that exposes and light that leads the way. It's those blessed people who are the salt and the life of the earth. So if we steep in the Sermon on the Mount, we will be a people who do more than any other people to preserve and transform the world. Verse 17, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them, teaches them, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. As we read through the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to notice something striking. Jesus wants his people to be different. You'll notice it as you keep reading. He wants them to be different than the Pharisees, different than the hypocrites, different than the Gentiles, different than the religious and the irreligious. He's making a new kind of people. Here we read that he just wants us to be different than the scribes and Pharisees. And as we strive to obey the Sermon on the Mount in the power of the Spirit, we will become a people who surpass the legalistic righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, and who walk in true righteousness so real, it fulfills everything called for by the law and the prophets of the Old Testament. Verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool. Now listen to me, children, because that's, that's a sound I know is heard in a lot of homes, like it's no big deal. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. But if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to prison and the judge to the guard and you be in prison. You be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Jesus here goes after the root of murder, which is hatred. And as we soak in the sun of the Sermon on the Mount, we'll be a people who overcome the struggle that many of you would confess to be an abiding struggle in your life. The struggle of anger and the division that comes with it. We'll become a people who fight anger as if heaven and hell were at stake. Verse 27. You have heard it said, 
you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. The porn epidemic will not be overcome by any cultural movement, not by the Me Too movement. Its root was severed by the teachings of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago and can be overcome by anyone who will fight lust with the intensity that Christ calls for right here in this passage. Verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Beloved, listen to me carefully on this. There's a lot of sin in marriage. But Jesus calls us to marriages that last. Marriages that press on. Building a family even when there are many difficulties. Marriages that can thrive over time because divorce is not an option. It's not on the table as one of the solutions to the problems you face and you will face in marriage. If that doesn't seem helpful, you maybe haven't been married long. But Jesus narrowing the options for, to, for marriage and saying, you've got to stick this out, is an amazing incentive for actually producing growth in marriage. But at the same time, he does not call us to be one member of someone else's harem, one stop on someone else's circuit of selfish sexual satisfaction. When that happens, divorce is an option. If we heed the Sermon on the Mount, we will become a people with marriages so permanent, even sinners can grow in them, and marriages that are so not permanent that adulterers can't abuse them. Verse 33. Again, you've heard it said that it, to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the, his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. If the Sermon on the Mount molds us, we will be a rare people indeed will be a people whose word is utterly reliable. Verse 38. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. If we follow the Sermon on the Mount, we'll wind up a Christ-like people. 
not driven by the retaliation that leads to wars, never-ending wars all over the earth, never-ending wars in marriages and friendships, but we will become what missionary and author Isabel Kuhn called second-mile people. People who go the extra mile even for those who would abuse us. Verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, sends rain on the just and on the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect." What an amazing calling. If we were to listen to this sermon and take it into our lives, we would be like God the Father. We won't only be kind to the people of our tribe, our party, our ethnicity, which is exactly what's tearing apart this nation right now. There's just always a favoritism towards your tribe, your party, your race, your socioeconomic class. We would show generous love to all of our neighbors even our enemies. If we listen to the Sermon on the Mount, we will be unlike the Gentiles around us who are loving and kind to their people, their tribe. We will be like Christ who loved His enemies. Verse 6. Or is this the beginning of chapter 6? Yes, chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I've talked to so many people over the course of my life in ministry who would tell you the reason they do the right thing is they're scared of people. They're pleasers. They want to make other people happy. And here Jesus is calling us into a way of walking with God that's not primarily oriented to making other people happy. It does the right thing because God sees it. And because God loves to reward those who honor Him. Verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. There's one of those contrasts. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Another one of those contrasts. For they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. 
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The last section told us not to be like the Pharisees. This section on prayer calls us not to be like the Gentiles. The Pharisees loved superficial religion. The Gentiles loved, sorry, the, the Pharisees loved superficial righteousness. The Gentiles loved superficial religion. The Sermon on the Mount forms us into a people who are all about reality, real prayer, real help, real forgiveness, a real relationship with the Father who is in heaven. Think about this. Every Christian finds prayer hard. And when Jesus teaches us how to pray, he doesn't give us some massive lifts of hoops to jump through. In fact, he says repetition's not even important. Pray these simple things. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that is pleasing to God. So walking away from your prayer life because you failed, because it wasn't complex enough or repetitive enough, is washed away completely by the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus is interested in giving you real-life communion with God. And when you fast, this is verse 16, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces that, they may be, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The Sermon on the Mount will make us a people whose religion is not gloomy and showy. The Sermon on the Mount will make us a people whose prayers are seen and rewarded by God Himself because that's who we were praying to. Verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The Sermon on the Mount will set our hearts on solid treasures. Treasures that can't be destroyed by your own financial incompetence and treasures that no president and their running of the economy and they're bankrupting your 401k can ruin. But treasures that are secure forever in heaven. Verse 21. The eye of the lamp, sorry, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If there is light in you, how great. If there, sorry, if there is light in you, 
If the, I'm sorry, if then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? The Sermon on the Mount will give us healthy spiritual eyes to bring light to every part of our bodies and soul. You ever feel like you're walking in the dark? The sermon comes to serve you. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Sermon on the Mount will deliver us from the great God of America and the world, money, and it will free us to serve our one Lord and Savior, the one true and living God. Now, if you wanted a section on the sermon that will nail you right between the eyes and hit you right where you're at, here it is. Verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious. Relevant to anyone here. Do not be anxious about your life. That's going right for the jugular. Like, what else would I be anxious for? I'm always anxious about my life. What you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. Go outside after the service. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what will we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, there's that contrast again, for the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. If you're sick of being scattered by anxiety and not knowing what to do, the Sermon on the Mount says, don't be anxious because of God's fatherly care. Do give yourself 100% to advancing the kingdom of God and he'll take care of all the details in your life. Chapter 7, verse 1. Perhaps the most misquoted verse in all the sermon at this day and age. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you will pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? When there's the log in your own eye, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck 
out of your brother's eye. Preachers who are too spiritual to give good illustrations obviously never read Jesus. Right? This is brilliant. Guy coming at you with log eye, ready to do surgery on the speck in your eye. Like, buddy, get away. The point is, if we listen to the Sermon on the Mount, we will wind up a people who do not try to do surgery hypocritically on those who have much smaller sins than ours, but rather will be much more focused on our own sin. Watching kids, you see them scream at their siblings for their sins, and then when you try to get them to acknowledge their own, you can barely rip it out of their lips. And I've seen that in myself, and plenty of adults too. But if we listen to the Sermon on the Mount with open ears and submissive hearts, we will be getting better at helping others by first dealing with the obvious sins in our own life. Verse 6, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. If we listen to the Sermon on the Mount, we will grow in discernment and we will avoid wasting our time sharing the gospel with people who will trash it and attack us. We all have limited time. We don't need to be speaking the truth to pigs that will only throw shade on the light of Christ. This Sermon on the Mount will teach us how not to be so robotically committed to evangelism that we actually increase the attacks on our lives and the gospel. It sounds like timely wisdom to me. Verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him. I already said it, but it's still true, right? We all struggle in prayer. But what could grow you in confidence and persistence in prayer more than this? Jesus himself telling you to keep going. Ask and seek and knock. And then Jesus himself reinforcing the idea that the one you're asking to, even if he's delayed answering your prayers for decades, is a good father who wants to give good gifts more than you want to give good gifts to your own children. Chapter 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard, that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Will we be a people of love? I mean, that, those words right there, as, as you would have others treat you, you treat them. The most important thing in the world is love. The whole law is about love. Love God with everything you are. Love your neighbor as yourself. Or in the words of Jesus, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. When was the last time you laid in your bed when you're thinking about the will of God? What should I do in this situation? What would that person want done to them? How would the other person I'm thinking about want to be treated 
right now. That is as piercing, as convicting as human words, while these are divine words as well, can ever be. We often fall short of love. We're sentimental and nostalgic, or we're bitter and unforgiving. But here, it's interesting, I find that the way of love is linked very closely with the narrow gate that leads to life. And the broad gate that leads to destruction. The gate that leads to eternal life goes through Christ and makes people people of love. Verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them, those false teachers, by their fruits. If we read the Sermon on the Mount, we will be a people with greater discernment. There are false teachers out there that look true. Wolves in sheep's clothing. People say these false teachers will tear, Jesus says these false teachers will tear us apart like ravenous wolves. So then the question is, well, how do you spot them? You will recognize them by their fruits. The Sermon on the Mount will give us the discernment to know the difference between false teachers and true. The Sermon on the Mount will keep us from being torn apart by the gift of biblically informed discernment. How many here have ever been afraid of having false assurance of faith? The Sermon on the Mount protects us from false assurance of faith. Verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On, the, on that Day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from you, you workers of lawlessness. One of the most terrifying realities of the world is on the last day there will be some people who are told they're not going to heaven and they will be so confident that they are going to heaven they will argue with Jesus. They'll tell Him He's wrong. And their protest will be based on things they did that were supernatural. Now what that can do is it can create in believers a sort of introspection like maybe I'm one of these people who's tricked. There's no need to feel that way. The mark of these unbelievers is not something complicated you need to figure out in your heart. It is simply this. They are lawless. They don't obey the Sermon on the Mount. They don't listen to Jesus. Depart from me, not you, you ones who were tricked, or you dumb ones, but you lawless ones. So giving ourselves to a gospel-reliant obedience to the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest assurance that on the last day there will no, be no depart from me, but rather a come to me. 
The last illustration Jesus uses, he's just multiplying illustrations as the sermon goes on, is an illustration that shows us how to have true assurance, how to know you're going to heaven. Verse 24, everyone who hears, hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it has been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, the lawless ones, the ones who didn't listen to the Sermon on the Mount, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. We will be a wise people with assurance of salvation as we take in this sermon. Jesus ends his sermon by giving us an illustration of two houses caught in one horrendous storm. The house built on the rock of his word stands. The house built on the sand of human wisdom is destroyed. This is an illustration of the final judgment. When God's wrath comes, some lives will stand, others will be destroyed. Do you want to know your life will stand? The Sermon on the Mount is meant for your instruction and your eternal assurance. Verse 28, we're done the sermon. And when Jesus finished these words, sorry, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Imagine that. Emmanuel, imagine that. Teaching that has the tragically unfamiliar ring of real, actual, trustworthy authority. Throughout the world, confidence in political leaders is low. I saw a, a, a poll done this week. Confidence, this won't surprise you, in our news media is at an all-time low. All around us, there is no voice you can trust. And at the same time that we can't seem to trust anyone, Everyone is trying to persuade us. Advertisers on TV, influencers on Instagram, opinions on Facebook, preachers fighting on Twitter, diversion on TikTok. Who should we listen to? Whose voice can cut through the chaos and speak above the confusion? It's the voice of the Son of David. It's the voice of the Son of God. It's the voice of the one who preached this Sermon on the Mount. Some of you, listen to me. You tried listening to yourself for a while. You tried doing whatever seemed right in your own eyes, and you have made a terrible mess of your lives. You've ruined it. You've wrecked it. You've left scars you're not sure will heal. Here's another voice. Here is the voice of the Son of God saying, follow me, and I'll lead you into life. I'll lead you into paths of pleasantness and joy. There may be persecution, but there will also be joy. There may be a loss on this planet, but there will also be eternity as you are a member of the kingdom of heaven. And some of you are just tired from all the voices out there. But when was the last time you just stopped all those voices, turned your phone off, and read the Sermon on the Mount? We need to listen to Jesus. And that is exactly what we'll do. 
over the coming next weeks and months. Would you pray that we would listen to him accompanied by the power of his Holy Spirit so that we would be transformed and assured that we are, in fact, those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we are not lost in the dark, but your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We pray that you would shine your word and that we would follow. We pray that we do this in Jesus' name. Amen.